Good morning, church. Get one moment here as I get adjusted. Um, I'm thankful this morning for the opportunity to, to fill the pulpit. Um, the book of beginnings is quickly coming to an end. Uh, this morning we'll be in chapter 48. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 48. And when you get there, you will see that Jacob is sick. He's ill. He's on his deathbed. Um, this is a very a personal account of Jacob with his son and his son's sons. Uh, probably their last time together, just them. It's a personal account that for our sake, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal to us this morning. And you need to know that this text is a special one in the life of Jacob. Uh, we've been talking about and, and preaching about and teaching about Jacob for many months, right? Several. Just take a, a moment. Pause for the cause with me, okay? Take a moment. How would you finish this sentence? Jacob was a blank. I put character, all right? You, you ever hear someone say that? Well, he's, he's a character, right? It's usually a nicer way of saying something else. Um, but the Bible gives us, right, the good, the bad, and the ugly with Jacob. Um, though there's a lot of negative to say about Jacob and his life, uh, did you know, I think we've said this, that Jacob, you could find him in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, Right? In that great hall where you have Abel, who by faith offered an acceptable sacrifice to God. Uh, you have Enoch, who by faith walked with God and God took him, right? You have Noah, who by faith built an ark. You have Abraham, who by faith obeyed when he was called to go, and the list goes on and on. Think about Jacob and, and, and him being in this great hall of faith. What have we studied thus far about Jacob that you would choose to illustrate his faith? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Um, if you go way back with me, thinking about Jacob, uh, you know, the first time Jacob mentions God in the book of Genesis, it's with a lying tongue, deceiving his father with God's name on his lips. That's in Genesis 27. And Jacob, throughout his life, he isn't described as one who seems to have a, an intimate relationship with God. We see God near to Jacob, but that's not always reciprocated. We, uh, through Jacob, uh, J Jacob would have professed to be uh, one of faith, but we hardly see him pray. Um, he seems to lean on himself when he's in difficult circumstances. There's so many examples we could pick from, right? But as Petey mentioned last week, Jacob finishes well. He finishes well. One commentator put it this way. I really like how he said it. Jacob the deceiver has become Jacob the mature believer, right? Jacob the deceiver has become Jacob the mature believer. And all, out of all the things that we've read in Genesis concerning Jacob... The thing that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uses to illustrate his faith in the great hall of faith is actually what takes place right here in our passage today, on Jacob's deathbed in chapter 48. 
And so let's read our text this morning with this in mind, and then we'll jump in. Genesis 48, starting in verse 1, the text reads, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Don't forget those two. They're going to be important here. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the, to, to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his hand, his right hand, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since the, the one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his young brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Spirit, help us this morning as we approach your word. Help us to understand this text and what you intend for us to know by revealing it to us. That, that we, Lord, would be transformed by it. That we, we would be further equipped so that we would bring you glory with our lives. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen. And so we've just read all of Genesis 48, and you will see in this text, Jacob in his last hours, filled with faith and prophetic blessing to give, so that you this morning would stand firm in your faith and be assured of the promises and blessings that God has for you and your life. And we're going to see this um, this morning in 10 points, not your typical Baptist three. Um, I had some extra coffee this morning, and just three points, we're not going to cut it, all right? So the first point is found in verses 1 and, and part of 2. It says, uh, or uh, my, my first point is Israel's sickness, Israel's sickness. It was already told to us in the last chapter that Jacob was dying, that he was old, uh, and, and, but our text, verse 1, it starts, it separates the events of chapters 47 and 48 with the words, after this. So sometime after the events of chapter 47, Jacob's weak and aging body has gotten ill. Uh, has, he's become sick. And um, just a side note here, I'll have several of these. Um, the first time, this is the first time in the scriptures, okay, that we see the word illness here. Um, and I know that's such a normal word to us, illness. But remember, and don't forget, that illness is not how God created the world, right? Illness is a result of sin, and one day it will no longer be. Illness should only motivate our anticipation for God's coming kingdom, where there's no more death, no more tears, right? No more sickness. And it is with this illness that word gets to Joseph. And, and what does Joseph do? He goes, he probably gets in his chariot, and he doesn't go alone, right? He takes what? He takes Manasseh, his firstborn, and Ephraim, his second oldest. And he goes to Goshen, where his father is, in Egypt. And when they get there to Jacob, Jacob was made aware. And what's the text say that Jacob did? Look at your Bibles. He sat up, which gets me into our second point, okay? Looking at verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. Point two, Israel's strength. Notice a couple things here. The, the, the chapter, chapter 48, it starts, okay, with the name Jacob, who is laying horizontal on his deathbed. And then who sits up? What's the name given? Israel. Who had given Jacob the name Israel back in Genesis 32? Who is the source of God or, or of Jacob's strength? It is God. Look at your, your Bibles. Look at verse 3. God Almighty. Jacob, he's fighting aches and he's fighting pains. He takes his mind to Almighty God. El Shaddai is the title there. A title that is made up of a few Hebrew words. El stems from Elohim, meaning the, uh, the, the, the God who is mighty and the one true God, and Shaddai meaning sufficient. There's also a belief that Shaddai is equated to a, a really big, tall, high mountain. In other words, the picture that, that can be shown through this title, this name for God, is look at the one true God who towers over us. He is so much greater than us. There's no one like him. I also thought it was interesting when looking at this, this title for God, it's used in contrast oftentimes in the scriptures with man's frailty, man's weakness. Jacob's weak here. 
El Shaddai is also used um, in the book of Job. It's one of the favorite titles of, of God in the book of Job, where Job is frail and weak. And talking about this, there's a lot here that should motivate our faith, that should strengthen us where we sit, that God towers over us. He is so great and above us. There is no one like him. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is the creator of the universe. He spoke the universe into existence. As Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 1 says, that, that he holds the universe by the word of his power. He sustains all things. He is transcendent. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the greatness of God. And yet, even though he towers over me with his greatness, he is also near to me. And he has revealed himself to me. And I can have a, a close, intimate relationship with this almighty God who alone is sufficient for my life. Jacob looks back. He, at the very end of his life, he looks back and he recognizes this when he says that the almighty God uh, appeared to me at Luz. Which, if, if you remember, Genesis 28, 19, is, it's, it's the place Bethel. Okay, He renamed it Bethel. It's where God approached him right? And Bethel means the house of God. And, and note, in that text, Jacob didn't run to God. God ran to him. He came near, he drew near to Jacob to bless him, to continue the blessings that he made to Abraham and Isaac and now with Jacob. Even though Jacob is old, even though his body is probably just screaming at him to just lay back down and get some rest, right? God gives him continued strength. He sits up, he reflects, he speaks clearly, he speaks accurately, and he doesn't make it all about him. He doesn't look back on his life and he's like, yeah, you know, I left home, I made a life for myself, uh, and I found the perfect girl, uh, and she had a terrible dad, and uh, I, I just became so, I, I became so um, wealthy, I had such a wealthy life, you know, I had so many things. It was, sometimes we could do that, right? Um, looking back on our life and make it all about us. But his emphasis here, Jacob's emphasis is God-centered, not Jacob-centered, right? And do you see in our text, when God did draw near to him, where the emphasis is put? Did you, did you notice this? God said, I will make you a fruitful and multiply. God said, I will make of you a company of peoples. God said, I will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. God has been more than sufficient to the character, Jacob, right? Um, all of these years. And it's in this God where Jacob finds his strength even though his body is decaying. He remembers the words of Almighty God, I will, I will, I will. He, he recounts his promises. He thinks on his faithfulness and how his God drew near to him all the days of his life. Church, we're almost, it's almost as if we're seeing Jacob um, kind of living out 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 to 18 before 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 were even written, right? Uh, before Paul writes, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Yeah, Jacob's body was wasting away. Yeah, right? He's very close to death. But his inner self has never been stronger. He's never been more alive spiritually than right now in this moment. 
It's something we should strive for as we get older, as we face various pains and ailments, seeking a, a constant renewing in our inner man that comes only from the Lord and his word. And so Israel's strength, it comes from Almighty God. Point three, Israel's sons. Look at verses five through six with me. Remember that is, uh, Jacob does not come alone to see, or excuse me, Joseph doesn't come alone to see Jacob. He takes two of his sons with him, his oldest sons. But notice that they will not leave as sons of Joseph because Israel here chooses to adopt them. Manasseh and Ephraim, these two half-Egyptian sons of Joseph. And Jacob says, they shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Why did Jacob say that? Who are Reuben and Simeon? Uh, yeah, they're Jacob's oldest sons. If you remember, right, it's not from Rachel that he had these sons, but from Leah. And if you're like, who's Leah? Then you got to go back and read Genesis 29. It's a doozy, right? Um, just take my word for it. Uh, it'll answer all your questions. But why would Jacob do this? Um, I don't know if I have the time to do this, but write down this reference. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I think it gives us a little bit of insight uh, for our passage. Um, but that text says, looking on these events, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son, though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Reuben had defiled his father's bed by sleeping with his father's concubine, Bilhah, right? We've read about this. Um, and I don't want to step on PD's text for next week, but let's just, let's just stick our big toe in it, okay? Um, Genesis 49, 3 through 4. He actually says, Jacob says this to Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and my firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And right after Jacob says that about Reuben, we see next that he curses Simeon as well for going on that bitter rage in Shechem uh, uh, because of what they did against Dinah, their sister. Uh, sorry, PD, that uh, a big dipping of the toe can turn into a cannonball real fast. Uh, stay in my lane. Back to my text. So, so what we see here, though, it's significant. Um, Israel would replace his two oldest sons, Reuben and Simeon, with Joseph's two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He would adopt them as his own and give to them their birthright. And in, in doing so, Joseph is, is greatly blessed. You know, fathers in the room, what do you want for your sons? What do you want for your kids, right? You, you want the best. Joseph's two half-Egyptian sons were being given a huge honor and blessing here. And Joseph would have two tribes that come from him, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, to look at our next point, this next point looks like it's just kind of coming out of nowhere if we look at verse 7. But remember where Jacob is. He's on his deathbed. He's looking back. And, and how could he think back without seeing Rachel? Verse 7, uh, point number 4, Israel's sorrow. 
Here Israel is talking to Joseph, his and, and Rachel's oldest son. Though Jacob could hardly see, as we read in our text, he could see maybe a little. He could hear Joseph's voice. And it made him think back to his precious wife, Rachel, his first true love, the woman that he worked 14 hard years for, but it only felt like a couple days because of how much he loved her, right? And maybe Jacob wished that Rachel could see her, her boys now, see her Joseph now. No doubt Jacob missed her, probably the greatest sorrow that he had faced in his life when Rachel died in giving labor to Benjamin, she died unexpectedly, just as the text says, so unexpectedly that she wasn't able to be buried in the family tomb. And yet Jacob's faith in the Lord remains, as we see in this chapter, fixed on the promises of God. Let me just speak to you this morning. Everyone in this room will face great sorrows in your life, great sorrows that will shake you to your core, but what makes all the differences is who you run to when those sorrows come. I can't imagine going through this life without the Lord and facing these sorrows head on without the hope and promises that we have in God. It makes me think about Christ when he looks on the crowds and his earthly ministry, um, Matthew nine thirty six, when he says, in seeing the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like a sheep without a shepherd. I've heard it said before, maybe you have as well, for a life without Christ, this is the best it's going to get. A, a life filled with sorrow, hardship, emptiness, but to have life in Christ, this is as bad as it gets because the life to come, to put it in a word, is perfect because our heavenly Father is perfect and his kingdom is perfect. Sorrow in this life should remind us that this place is not all that it is, right? That our, our home, that we belong with the Lord forever, not here. Point number five, Israel sees, verses eight through 11. It's a bit ironic here in these verses. Jacob can hardly see, but in verses eight through 11, it says that he sees over and over again. Verse 10, it says that his eyes were dim with age. In verse eight, when Joseph brings his sons to Jacob, Israel says, who are these? It's a bit ironic because his father Isaac, wasn't he in a similar predicament, right? Some commentators suggest that Jacob asked who the kids were so that he might not be deceived, like he deceived his father. Jacob knew all the tricks. I mean, a, a, a deceitful meal and some like hairy, fake hair on, on somebody's like arms, not gonna, you know, mess him up. Um, it's not gonna mess up the, the blessing that God laid upon his heart. I want you to catch something, though. If you look at verse 9, Joseph, not seeking to be deceitful when Jacob says, who are these? Joseph says, these are my sons whom God has given me here. Note that. Who gave these children to Joseph? God did. Ultimately, these children came from the Lord. I... Uh, I don't know if this is a saying he got somewhere else, but PD always says this, you know, God makes babies. I remember sitting right here, um, we were talking about, we were talking about um, maybe the, 
worship order of service or something the week prior or the week ahead. And, and at the end of that, I told him the news that I found out that we were pregnant again. And when I mean we, I mean my wife was pregnant again. And this one was a little different because we weren't planning for this one um, like the others. And uh, I remember without any hesitation, he looked at me and he said, congratulations, God's, God makes babies, is what he said. Um, and it's true. It's true. And Monica is greatly loved. Um, but it is horrifying. It is horrifying how this world seeks to destroy the good and wonderful things that God makes. That which God knits together, little image bears. Abortion is murder. Slaughtering babies in the womb, tearing them apart in the most horrifying ways. And church, we live in a state, we live in a country, but we live in a state where this week people are celebrating this. Ohioans need Christ. They need to repent. They need to be warned of the judgment to come. Vengeance belongs to, to the Lord and vengeance will be his. Not one baby that he makes which is aborted is, is lost or forgotten. He knows them all. And so jo Joseph brings his two young boys which God had given him to Israel and he embraces them, he kisses them and he says, I never expected to see your face, Joseph, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. How gracious God has been to Jacob. What a sweet happiness and a, 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 how this would have warmed his heart, right, um, at, at the end of Jacob's life. And notice Jacob here gives the credit to God for being able to see Joseph's sons. You see that in our text? The text says, God has let me see your offspring also. Jacob knows how incredibly blessed he is by God. That he is so undeserving of all the blessings that he's been blessed with and now on top of everything else, to be able to see his son Joseph at the end, along with his offspring, his grandsons. A sweet moment. Don't fail to notice that gracious, the, the gracious hand of God here, because Jacob doesn't. He, he makes mention of it. And we also see that Joseph places Manasseh and Ephraim on his knees, as we'll see in verse 12. Um, I, I had a note that said in the ancient Near East, this, is, this was their custom, the adoption rit rituals of this day included placing the adopted children on the knees of the adopting parent to symbolize the adopter giving birth to the child in place of the birth mother. Interesting note. Um, it's a little more complicated today to adopt a child. Um, but point six, let's keep going. Israel stretches, verses 12 through 14. Okay, so Joseph now takes the kids off Jacob's knees, and he bows low to the ground. Let me just make a quick note of that. Okay, Joseph is the second most important person in Egypt. Or could we say that jo Joseph is the second most important person in the world at this time, right? And he's kind of a big deal. And yet he never loses respect for his father. He, he honors him. Too often today, children can act so foolishly in forgetting who raised them, forgetting who God has graciously put in their lives, who poured into them and, and took care of them in all of their needs. Uh, parents are far from perfect. I can say this with confidence because I am one. Um, parenting's hard. Jacob, I think, would have amen that if he was here. Um, I think he knew it was hard. But parents are also so undervalued in our culture today, which is not how the scripture teaches. 
Uh, Ephesians 6, 2, any kids that are still in here, honor your father and your mother. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. It's God's will for you. And I want you to see this. Joseph is helping his dad out here, okay? Because Jacob is about to stretch out his arm and bless his newly adopted sons. Again, Manasseh the older, Ephraim the younger. And Joseph thinks through it in his head, or at least I would have. He probably didn't need to, but, um, you know, okay, so I need Ephraim on my dad's left, so he touches him with his left hand, and I need my oldest son Manasseh on my dad's right, so he touches him with his right, okay? Because as many of you know, the right hand is symbolic of power and authority, right? Jesus sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, Hebrews 1, right? Um, So even though he plans this all out, it's the old proverb, right? Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What does Jacob, Israel, do with his outstretched arm? Crosses him. I mean, it's really easy to like lift him up like this, even if you're like really old and weak. I don't know, maybe it would have hurt. But like to cross him like this, that would have taken a little bit of work. He crosses him. He places his right hand on Ephraim, the younger boy, and the left on Manasseh, the older. This is a big deal. To bless someone back in this day, it was, symbolic. it was a symbolic transferring of power from one person to another. Jacob here is symbolically transferring a blessing from himself to Ephraim and Manasseh. And remember, remember that the, once the blessing was given, it was irrevocable. It couldn't be taken back. It couldn't be changed. Remember Esau begging Isaac to reverse the blessing. But it was done. It was a done deal. So Israel stretched out his arms. Point seven, Israel's shepherd. Look at with me uh, in verses 15 to 16. We'll come back to the blessing of the younger before the older, but, but let's look at what Jacob says here. Jacob says that God has walked with me, shepherded me, and redeemed me. Note that there's a couple firsts here, okay? First time that God is likened to a shepherd in the Bible. Even before David came on the scene and Psalm 23 was written, Or Psalm 80, verse 1, which says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Or Isaiah 40, verse 11, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. Jacob really, in in his deathbed, has become quite the theologian. God is almighty in verse 3, and now he likens God to a shepherd who has walked closely with him just as he did with his fathers Isaac and Abraham. Any note on anything agricultural, I, I, without apologies, I, I tend to lean on commentary pretty heavy because uh, I, I grew up a little bit more in the city. Um, and I've told you that before, and I tell you this again, and so this note that I'm about to share with you is more for my own benefit, but I hope, okay, that this note and sharing this about sheep and agriculture and farming, I hope that it helps you see God more clearly and who we are before God. This, this note, it says this, sheep do not take care of themselves, as some might suppose, but rather they require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. Sheep are timid and easily panicked. Even a stray rabbit, this is kind of crazy to read for me, even a stray rabbit suddenly jumping from behind a rock can stampede a flock and do damage. Uh, Sheep are also cruel and competitive. The larger and stronger will take the best grazing spots and drive others from it. Sheep are prone to parasites and insects and have no defense mechanisms against them. Worst of all, sheep will graze land to death. 
eating grass to the soil and even pulling up the, and consuming the roots. If sheep are not systematically moved from one pasture to another pasture, the lands, and the lands wouldn't be cared for, the flock will languish, and dry, sunburned wastelands will result. A shepherd must be on duty every hour of the day and night, protecting the sheep from things that are constantly endangering the flock to ensure the sheep's welfare. That sounds exhausting. Um, I, I thought about this past summer getting a dog, and... Um, you know, I was like, I could do it, I can, and then I met someone that has a dog that has an allergy to grass, and I thought, man, could you imagine, like, what, chances would be if I get a dog, it's going to have all sorts of problems with it, you know? Um, I couldn't take care of a dog, let alone shepherd a flock, you know, of of animals, Um, and so God did call me to be a pastor, though, so I have to be kind of careful there. Um, (laughs) Not saying you're all, you know, Okay, so (laughs) Jacob, though, he knew what shepherding took. He knew what shepherding took and therefore found an apt, inspired comparison for the Lord in calling him his shepherd. Jacob had spent a a large portion of his life trying to shepherd himself only for it to lead to disaster. And at the end of his life, he knew, he knows that, that God was walking and shepherding him all along. He then speaks of the angel in verse 16, a reference to a a theophany, a a visible appearance or manifestation of God. I think it's a reference back to when God, uh, when Jacob wrestled God. He calls the angel here one who has redeemed him, one who had delivered him, delivered him from every trouble, every evil. I can think of countless examples in Jacob's life that if God weren't sovereign and I was a betting man, I would bet that Jacob would have died there and there and there, right? But God has been near him, saving him at every reckless turn. And this is the first time, by the way, that the word redeemer is used in the book of Genesis. I would say in the Bible, but if you place and date Job before Genesis, I mean, that's, it's in there in 19. So, um, but another word, okay, redeemer, that would take prominent place in how we think and talk about God. Jesus claims this for himself when he says, I am the good shepherd. He is the one who redeems us to save us from our greatest enemy, which is sin. And he will willingly, and he willingly laid down his life for his sheep, John 10. Jacob had faith in this God, this almighty God who had walked with him, shepherded him, and redeemed him. And he prays here that his kids would take up the baton. They would would have this same faith and run this race for Christ. This same race that Abraham ran and Isaac ran and that Jacob was about to finish. Just look at Jacob's faith in action here. What's the saying? Anyone could start a race, but it's how you what? It's how you finish. Next point, point eight, Israel's stubbornness. Look at verses 17 to 19 with me. Going back to the blessing, this, this greatly displeases Joseph. We see when Joseph um, sees where, where Israel places his hands, what does Joseph try to do? Tries to move them. Um, to give the first blessing to the younger instead of the older, that was, that was completely backwards. Uh, one, one commentator said, Jacob transgressed every tradition from the Nile to the Euphrates when he did this. Uh, the Hebrew words here show Joseph's displeasure um, in, in verse 17. He took his father's hand. That's not like a gentle, like, here, father, let me move this. You have it messed up, you know? He grabbed, he, he gripped his father's hand. 
And the language here also supports a stern command. Not this way, my father. But Jacob was stubborn, determined not to change his mind on this, even though it displeased his beloved son, Joseph. He says, I know, my son, I know. An emphatic way of saying, I have this right. Anytime you see in the two words repeated back to back in the scriptures, it's, it's typically for emphasis. And it's not stated in the text, but this is prophetic what Jacob is speaking here. And we know that it's perfect, uh, prophetic, it's, it's, it's implied, because of everything that he says comes true. Someone in my, uh, somebody in my study pointed this out, that Jacob's eyes may not be able to see much, but God allows for Jacob to see things that man cannot see, and that is the future. Jacob says that Manasseh, though not the first in the blessing, will still become a people, he still will become great, but... But the younger brother Ephraim will be greater than Manasseh, and his offspring will become a multitude of nations. And if you know your Israelite history, you'll know that uh, later on, right, the nation will become two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, you'll have ten tribes. And then in the southern kingdom, they, they would have two. And if you read Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, or the prophet Hosea, Oftentimes, those prophets will refer to the northern tribes, those northern ten, as what? Ephraim. And so everything that Jacob says here comes true. They truly would multiply, starting even in Egypt and through the Exodus. They become great nations, but make no mistake, Ephraim would become much greater than Manasseh. The question you could ask is, why does God do it this way? Why does God choose the younger over the uh, older? Well, first, let me just say this without any apologies. God is sovereign. He's in absolute control over all things. He's he's not at our mercy. He's not limited to the way we do things. Wait, God, but our tradition is this, right? He's not limited to our traditions. No matter how hard we try to put him in the box, right? He made the box. He's above the box, He can do miraculous things to accomplish His will for His purpose, all for His glory. And second, this isn't the only time we see God do this. Uh, This is very much within God's character when He chooses. Even in the book of Genesis, if you consider this with me, He chose Abel's sacrifice, younger brother, over Cain. He chose Seth, younger brother. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over his brothers, Ephraim over Manasseh. Why does He do this? Enter in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-31, one of my favorites. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look, check this out. God loves to take the average person, the below average person even, the poor the needy, the person of the lowest class, the lonely one, the forgotten one, the helpless, the loser, the unlikely one, the person at the bottom of the barrel. 
Why does he choose such people? Because it gives him the most glory. Look at the various examples in Scripture. Consider Moses and David, what they have accomplished through the Lord. It gives him glory. Some are rich that are called, some are famous, some are smart, but not most, not many. Let this be an encouragement to you this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm a nobody. I'm just average Joe, below average. God loves to use such people for his glory. All right, we have two points left. Uh, Point nine, Israel sang, verse 20. Uh, This verse can be a little tricky to to handle. There's a lot of commentaries that disagree on the significance of this verse. Some of them just jump over it like a hurdle altogether. Cowards. Um, I understand this verse to be more of a blessed saying. The nation could remember if you disagree with me. We could talk about it later. Um, Israel, though, who speaks the word says, by you, Israel. I don't think it's referring to himself here. I don't think he's referring to himself, but I believe that he's talking about the future nation. Israel pronounce, will pronounce blessings or praises, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. It would be a way to remember what God is like. Even if Israel was the weakest among all the other nations, God is a God who chooses the weak things to shame the strong. Even though Egypt would appear greater and more mighty, even the Babylonians or the Assyrians, right? They could remember how God works by thinking back to what happened, who God chose, Ephraim over Manasseh. I mean, that's why, ooh, time. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, why did God choose Israel? Wasn't because they were the greatest, right? They were actually the fewer among all of the nations, but God chose and set, set his affection on them, though the weak ones, the average ones, so that he could get all the glory. And then let's look at our final point this morning, point 10, Israel's sureness, verses 21 through 22. Though Israel is dying, his faith in God and his promises remain, and he is sure when he says, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And this is, of course, what happens. Jacob was in Goshen. He was about to die. He wasn't in the promised land. He was in Goshen. But he's absolutely 100% sure that God will remain faithful to his promises to him and to his fathers. And then let's look at that final verse that we have this morning. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. A bow. This is a, a tough one as well to, to, to understand, but the word in Hebrew is Shechem, which means mountain slope. Uh, so it could literally be translated, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, one Shechem. Play on, uh, play on words here. You might even have the word portion if you're using an NASB. Um, Shechem was an elevated land. It, was a, it had many advantages uh, to it. Believed to be a land that Jacob bought earlier from Hamar, king of Shechem. They lost the land, and then when Jacob arrived at Shechem, they violated Dinah, right? And they were believed to have won it back in a, in a violent way. Um, but this is actually where Joseph, okay, will be brought back to be buried after the conquest in Joshua 24, verse 32. But let me bring it back and, and see if I can land the plane here. Let's talk about jo- uh, Jacob. Let me, let, me, let me, in fact, I, I talked about it this, uh, earlier in the beginning, the great hall of faith, Hebrews 11. Let me read that account. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, though a character, he was a man of faith, and he finished the race well. 
And let me just remind you of the purpose of the text this morning. Today, we saw that Jacob in his last hours, filled with faith and prophetic blessings to give, uh, so that we this morning would stand firm in our faith and be assured of the promises and blessings that God has for our lives. Remember how God was described in Jacob's words, almighty shepherd redeemer. And our God is immutable. He never changes. The same God that Jacob worshiped is the same God that we worship today. And our God loves us so much that he became Emmanuel, God with us, so that we this morning could be like Manasseh and Ephraim, adopted into his precious family. John 1, 10 through 12, let me read this to you. He says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The right to become children of God, adopted. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Let me ask you uh, this question this morning, a very important question for you to consider in your own heart. Am I a family member of God? Have I been adopted into his precious family through Christ? If so, there is a blessing that is promised to you that is far greater than any physical land, riches, or anything else that this world could offer you. God has blessed his family with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 1.3. Church, relish. Relish in this reality. Stand firm in your faith. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me just say that maybe the Almighty God that we read about today, maybe he has drawn you here this morning to, to, to hear about Christ and what he came to do for you, to, to, to redeem or save you from your sins. He sacrificed himself willingly and lovingly, laying down his life for the sheep, taking you, the punishment of your sins upon himself so that you can have an everlasting relationship with this almighty God, which comes with an inheritance that can never perish and never will be defiled. If you want to know what it... It is to, to be adopted into his precious family. Please seek one of the elders out. We would love to explain that to you this morning. In closing, there couldn't be anything more important for us to consider this morning. As life is so short. But remember, looking back, I pray that we would, like Jacob here, physically decaying one day at a time. That we would be spiritually being renewed reflecting on the, the goodness and faithfulness and the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful text this morning as Jacob reflects on who you are and what you did in his life. It makes me think of all, the, all that you are and, and all that you've done for sinners like me and that I can trust that your promises that you've promised to me, that, that they will come to pass because you are faithful Help us as we await the fulfillment of your promises to stand firm in our faith that we would seek to glorify you with our hearts and lives until the very end. It's in your name we pray. Amen.